We'll start tonight with a, a question. Are you willing to worship a God who you don't always understand? Are you willing to obey God even if you don't know why he asked you to do something? Those are questions that we have to face up to as we come to this unexpected ending of 2 Samuel. Because here we have events recorded which seem very strange to us. David orders a a census to see how many fighting men he can call on. Uh, Verse 9 of our chapter makes clear that he's he's counting men who can bear the sword, men who can uh, fight in battle. He's not just having a, a census of the population in general. And it's a wrong thing to do. The chapter makes that clear, even though we're not told exactly why it was wrong. Uh, but uh, that's probably not too hard for us to accept. If God says it was wrong, it was wrong. Uh, that's not the hard bit. But what we do perhaps struggle with a bit more is that something which doesn't sound like a big deal to us results in the deaths of 70,000 people. That's not quite the full story, as we'll see later on, but it's, it's not too far away. Some people say that the biblical accounts of David are fictional accounts to make David sound like a better king than he really was. And yet the books of Samuel, which tell us more about David than any other part of the Bible, end with David sinning against God uh, and his sin being so bad, in fact, that it results in the deaths of 70,000 people. And as I say, events like this can be hard for us to understand. It's not that there was any great mystery for those in this story. There was, there was no doubt for those in the story that what David did here was, was, was wrong. And not just a little bit wrong, but a lot wrong. When David commanded his army commander, Joab, to go and number the people in verse 3, Joab tried to talk him out of it. And that in itself should make us sit up and take notice because uh, we've met Joab a few times now and we haven't ever seen him as a man who has a tender conscience. Uh, We have seen him murder in cold blood. But now what... David wants to do is so bad that Joab's conscience, which we didn't really know he had a conscience, Joab's conscience is troubled and he tries to talk David out of it. In fact, 1 Chronicles 21, where we get the same story uh, with a few extra details, it tells us that the king's command was so abhorrent to Joab that he didn't actually count everyone. So before... And during the census, Joab is horrified and disgusted. And after the census, David himself is conscience-stricken. But the Bible doesn't actually tell us why the census was wrong or why it deserved such a punishment. Now, I think we can make a pretty good stab at saying why it was wrong most commentators conclude that David's sin here is that by counting his men, it will stop him relying on God. Uh, it maybe even change, change the, the whole outlook of the nation. Uh, 
Israel was meant to be a blessing to the nations. They weren't meant to have have this uh, standing army uh, and, and strike fear into the nations around them. Uh, and once David knows how many men are in the army, uh, the, the temptation will be to think, well, everything's going to be okay because I have 1.3 million men who can fight if I need them to. He would be able to glory in his army. Uh, we'll sing... Uh, as we close tonight, the words of Psalm thirty-three, sixteen, which says, "The king is not saved by his great army." David most likely was the one who wrote those words, and yet he'd forgotten them. So while we're not told exactly why what David did was wrong, I don't think we'll be too far off if we conclude it was something to do with shifting his confidence from God to his army. Uh, we were thinking this morning about living by faith, uh, but it, the, the need to live by faith becomes less, less urgent if you can point to, to how many people you have in your army uh, compared to the nations around. That all makes sense to us, but, per, but perhaps the punishment doesn't. One commentator says here that David committed a greater sin than he had ever committed. And I guess the commentator is basing that on the fact of how many people died as a result. And that's the bit that might trouble us. And if it does trouble us, the challenge is, are we willing to trust God even when we don't understand him? Are we willing to live with an element of mystery? We touched on this last week, but many people today like to think that they are actually more moral than God. and That they can sit in judgment on the things that God says in the Bible. But as I said last week, one of the things that should give us pause for thought about that is the fact of what has placed biblical morality in our society. What has replaced biblical morality in our society is cancel culture, which brings with it a very keen sense of right and wrong, and yet without forgiveness. And as well as that, a God who only ever did things that we could understand wouldn't be God. There are some cultures where authority figures are never questioned, particularly traditional cultures. If your father, mother, employer or ruler tells you to do something in that sort of culture, you do it and you don't question why. And it often leads to abuse and exploitation. Now in the West, we go to the opposite extreme. In the West, we say, if, if you're an authority over me, you're only there because I elected you. You're there by my leave. If you're going to tell me what I should do, I, I want to know why. And if I don't think it's a good reason, then I'm not going to do it. Uh, that attitude is all around us. And we can end up bringing it into the church and into our relationship with God. But the problem with that is that if God is God and we are not, then he is at times going to do things that we don't understand. And our understanding cannot be the judge of what is right and wrong. 
If you tell a child to do something, nine times out of ten, they'll ask why. And good parents or grandparents or aunties or uncles will try and explain why. But there are things that they're just not going to be able to understand. And it's not because there's any weakness in their minds. It's not because they're not clever. It's just because they're six and you're 37. They're just not going to be able to understand some things and they just need to obey. In that situation, no explanation is going to help because they'll not be able to grasp it. One day they will be able to, uh, but not now. Reasons won't help them obey. But what will help them obey is if they trust you. Maybe we'll even say to them, look, sweetheart, I'm not able to explain it to you now, but you just need to trust me. And that's a bit like God and us. When he says that something is right or wrong, we need to believe him because he is God. We need to trust him and we can trust him because we know his character. It reminds me of an article I read recently by a woman who, before she was converted, would have called herself gay. And when she became a Christian, her attraction to women didn't disappear. Here's what she wrote. She says, I knew the Bible was clear. What I wanted was off limits, but I didn't understand why. How could love, intimacy and companionship be forbidden by this loving, intimate companion seeking God? But then what did she say? Did she say, well, I, did, I didn't understand why, so, so I, I just said I, I can't accept that. No, this is what she was on to say. She says, thus, I had to learn my first lesson of the Christian life. How to obey before I understood. In the end, she says, it came down to trust. I knew Jesus was worthy of trust because he had made a greater sacrifice. He had left the bliss, the comfort, the joy of loving and being loved to live a sorrowful life on earth. He took the pain and shame of a criminal's death and suffered the father's rejection all so that I could be welcomed. Who could be more deserving of trust? And then she went on to spell out something that I think we can often miss. She said the obedience of faith only works when it's rooted in a person, not a rule. She says that imposed on its own, a rule invites us to sit in judgment, weighing its reasonableness. But a, a rule flowing from relationship smooths the way for faithful obedience. And, and she gives the example when, when a child doesn't understand her mother's command. The mother's character plays a strong role in what happens next. If the mother is, is cruel, she is likely to meet resistance. But, but if she is an affectionate, nurturing mother who inspires trust, and the child knows that her mother is on her side, then that makes it much more likely that she will obey. Do you see what we're saying if we say that we can't obey a God who is wider than us, or wiser than us? In effect, we're, we're wanting a God who is just as limited as we are, who, whose wisdom doesn't go any, anywhere beyond ours. But if God really is infinitely above us, then it makes sense that there are some things that he will tell us to do that we won't understand. 
And sometimes we have to be content not knowing all the answers and to accept that God is God and we are not. But, but he has revealed enough about himself to us that we know we can trust him. We need to obey God because he is God and we are not. But he has also revealed to himself enough about himself that we know we can trust him. We know his character. And David realises that here. He knows enough about God to understand what his character is like. We see that when, when God gives David these three options as to what punishment he can face. David says in verse 14, Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. I wonder is that how you think about God? In 1996, there was an incident at a zoo in Chicago. Uh, A three-year-old boy fell 24 feet into the gorilla enclosure, uh, suffering a broken hand and a a gash on the side of his face. Uh, As the onlookers screamed, a seven-year-old female gorilla called Binti picked him up, cradled him in her arms and put him down near the door where the zookeepers could get him. Uh, Binti's still alive, she's 35, you can read about her on Wikipedia. Uh, what, is, what is so amazing to us about that story is that we don't normally associate gorillas with kindness. If we do, what happens next after a three-year-old falls into gorilla enclosure? It's probably not that the gorilla picks him up, uh, cradles him uh, and puts him where he can get help. And we think, well, well, that's great, but I'm still not going to send my, my three-year-old intentionally into the gorilla enclosure. It was great that it happened once, but, but it's a fluke. It's a one-off. And I wonder, are, are we like that with God, where we tend to look on his mercy as the exception rather than the rule? That, that yes, he, he, he may have been merciful occasion, on occasion, but we don't want to trust ourselves to him. But David is not like that. Even as God is angry here, David knows that that he is not facing a gorilla like God. If it is a choice between the mercy of God and the mercy of man, David is choosing the mercy of God every time. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. David has a grip on mercy, or... Rather, mercy has a grip on him. But that's getting a bit ahead of ourselves. uh, Because there's a turning point in this chapter before that, and it's verse 10. uh, Where we read that David's heart struck him. I said earlier that this chapter doesn't present David in a great light. But that's not the whole story. David is being pictured for us here, warts and all. This event seems to be towards the end of his life and it comes then with a warning that it's possible for a believer to commit bigger sins later in life than they ever did when they were younger. Growth in grace doesn't automatically come with age. 
Yes, we would expect uh, and hope that people who have been Christians a long time will have a spiritual depth and maturity to them. But it's also possible that someone could be a Christian for decades and still be spiritually immature. Now, I'm not saying that's the case for David. It, it isn't. But I'm just saying we shouldn't assume that because someone has been a Christian for a long time that, that the path of action that they take is necessarily wise or godly. And neither should we assume for ourselves that we are safe from committing big sins once we get to a certain age. And yet we do see a growth in David here because he's now more aware of his own sin. What do you think of when you think of a spiritually mature Christian? How would you uh, define such a person? Is it just someone who's been a Christian for a long time? Is it someone who knows a lot, who can quote a lot of the Bible? Is it someone who can uh, talk a lot about the sins of society? I mentioned Tim Keller this morning. Here's how he defined a spiritually mature person. And from all the tributes that have been paid to, to Keller since, since he died nine days ago, he lived out this definition himself. But, but here's his definition. He says, a spiritually mature person is someone who you criticise them, and even if your criticism is half wrong, they take the half that's right and say, I think you have a point. So they criticise you, half of what they say is nonsense. The spiritually mature person doesn't go, that is, that is complete nonsense, I'm not listening to any of that. They take the half that is true, and they, they take that on board. And why I say that David has grown as a Christian here is because do you remember what happened after he sinned with Bathsheba and after he had her husband killed? Did his heart strike a man? No, he just got on with life. Uh, another prophet, Nathan, had to come to him and show him his sin in such a way that he was cut to the heart. But here David's heart strikes him before the prophet comes. And he confesses his sin before it's exposed. On Friday, Philip Schofield was issuing statements saying that he was sorry he lied to people. But would he have been apologising for lying if he hadn't been found out? What a mark of grace it is to confess a sin to God or to another person before we're called to account about it rather than after. And yet while confessing our sin takes away guilt, which is wonderful and amazing, it doesn't take away the consequences of that sin in our life. I can think of a lady in a church that I preached to recently. She became a Christian when she was a lot younger, but she went away from the Lord around the time her children were young. And she went through a real period of backsliding. And now she's back at church She's taking her relationship with God seriously again, but her children aren't believers. And that is the single biggest grief in her life. And here David is going to have to face the consequences for his sin. Though 
actually why we talk about David's sin here. The chapter starts with the explanation for all that follows being that God was angry with Israel. And in his sovereignty, the way God decided to punish them was by inciting David to number them. Now that maybe opens up a whole other can of worms. Maybe someone will say, I thought James chapter 1 says that no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And that's true. So when we read here that God incited David against them, that's simply in the sense that God is sovereign over all things. And actually when we read the same story in 1 Chronicles 21, we're told that Satan incited David so, so one version of the story, God incites David. The other version of the story, Satan incites David. But it's not a contradiction. It's just filling out the details. God, in his anger against Israel, let Satan incite David to go and number them. And if we struggle to get our head around all that, it's okay. We are called to worship God even if we don't understand. Remembering that we can trust him. We're not always called to, to worship a God we can understand. But we, we are called to worship a God that we can trust. And who shows himself trustworthy. And perhaps it helps us trust God when we read about a story like this. When we realise that, that David, the man who's at the centre of all this the man who's forced to make this invidious choice as to which punishment will fall on his beloved people. That David trusted God in the midst of all this. And if David was right there and if it was his people who were being killed and his sin that was being punished and if he could trust in the midst of all this that God was more merciful than man. If he could trust in the midst of all this that God was good then we can too. So it's not quite right to say that 70,000 people here die because of the sin of one man. Uh, rather, 70,000 of the men of Israel die because God was angry with Israel. David's sin was just the background against which God brought down this punishment on them. What had Israel done to make God angry? Again, we're not told. Um, verse 24, or chapter, the chapter, uh, verse 1 starts with the word again. Uh, back in chapter 15 they had rejected God's choice of king and went after Absalom. In chapter 20 we, we saw another rebellion where we're told that all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. Uh, and so they, they, this is their, their self-destructive tendency to reject uh, the king that God sets over them. Uh, my, my, my article in, in the paper this week will be entitled Not My King? Question uh, mark. But it's not really talking about Charles. It's the, the human attitude to Jesus Christ. We say, not my king. And then we think we can live whatever way we want. But this rebellious spirit it, it, it has in whatever way manifested itself again. And so 70,000 of the men of Israel die, not because of David's sin, but because of their own sin, uh, because of the sin of their nation. And so actually when we get down to verse 17, 
what David says here is, uh, as one old Scottish commentator put it, is more beautiful than correct. David says, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? They're, they're words that are more beautiful than they are correct. Because uh, the people had done plenty. And yet David can see his own sin more clearly than the sin of others. That's the way it should be among God's people. Uh, we should be able to see our own sin more clearly than the sin of others. But so often it isn't. David here is willing to take more than his fair share of the blame. How often we try and do the opposite. Ever since the first sin when Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. We like to look for people to put the blame on. To shift the blame. But David does the opposite. He wants to take the blame. These sheep, what have they done? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying strike the shepherd, not the sheep. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may go free. Hold it against me, not against them. Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. It's an amazing request. Punish me instead. And David isn't alone here. Years before this, Moses had asked if he could be blotted out of God's book. If it would mean that the people could be forgiven instead. And in effect, these two uh, huge figures in the Old Testament, Moses and then David, they were saying, can a substitute not take the punishment instead? And can I not be the substitute? And with the New Testament in our hands, we, we find out the answer to that question, don't we? Yes, a substitute could take the punishment instead, but that substitute could not be David and it could not be Moses. They were sinful men as well. It had to be the Son of God himself. And at Calvary, the shepherd was struck that the sheep could go free. If you're a Christian tonight, you have a king who didn't simply want to take your punishment. But you have a king who actually did take your punishment. David was willing to take the punishment of the people. Moses was willing to take the punishment of the people. They were willing, but they were not able. Jesus was willing and able. If you're here tonight and you haven't yet been born again, the 70,000 dead bodies in this chapter is a message to us that sin is far more serious than we realise. You may not think your sin is a big deal, but are you going to trust your fallen human mind on that over God? If you don't think your sin is a big deal, pray that God would reveal that to you, which is something we all need to pray. And actually the biggest testimony to the seriousness of sin and the the sinfulness of sin, it isn't 70,000 dead in Israel in 1000 BC. It's the Son of God himself hanging on a cross in 33 AD as the sin bearer. Because that's what it costs that our sin might be forgiven. A thousand years later, it wasn't a destroying angel coming to Jerusalem, but an angel coming to sustain the Lord as he went to the cross. 
David loved his people. He genuinely loved his people. And yet his actions at times brought harm on them. And their own actions brought harm on them as well. But David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, would instead come and bring salvation to the people he loved. So this story at the very end of 2 Samuel, which seems so hard for us to get our heads around at first. Which doesn't give us the, the triumphant end to David's life we might expect. It actually points us forward to the Lord Jesus in a tremendous way. Which isn't surprising because that is the very reason God gave us the Bible in the first place. The Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus who was to come. And the New Testament telling us what he came, what he did, and how we must respond. Amen. (coughs) Well, we'll close tonight by singing a a psalm, the lesson of which David had forgot. It's Psalm 33, 9 to the end, on page 62. Psalm 33, 9 to the end. On page 62, it should 101. I'm noticing especially verse 10. A mighty army saves no king, great strength no warrior brave. Vain hope for victory is a horse, its great strength will not save. And then in the final verse, uh, verse 13 at the top of the next page, we sing about the God that we can trust in. Even if we don't understand at times, our hearts rejoice in him because we trust his holy name. Lord, as we hope in you, on us let covenant love remain. Uh, Verses 9 to the end of Psalm 33, if you're able, we'll stand as we sing.